Hey, welcome to the Africa Podcast. My name is Mikey Mhenna. On today's episode, we feature a conversation with author and professor Mustafa Bayoumi. Mustafa wrote the book, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem, Being Young and Arab in America. This conversation happened last week, and as always, if you want to attend these events, go to afikra.com slash RSVP. Thanks. Welcome, everybody. My name is Mikey Mahenda. I'm the executive director and founder of Afikra. Thanks so much for joining today's call. It is my honor to welcome our special guest. Mustafa Bayoumi is the author of the critically acclaimed book, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem? Being Young and Arab in America, which won an American Book Award and the Arab American Book Award for nonfiction. His latest book, uh, This Muslim American Life, Dispatches from the War on Terror, was chosen as a best book of 2015 by the Progressive Magazine and was also awarded the Arab American Book Award for nonfiction. Bayoum is also the co-editor uh, with Andrew Rubin of the Edward Said Reader and edited Midnight on the Mavi Mar- Mara, the attack on the Gaza Freedom Flotilla and how it changed the course of the, Israeli, uh, the Israel-Palestine conflict. Additionally, Mustafa has been featured in many outlets, too many to read, but uh, including the Wall Street Journal, the Chicago Sun-Times and CNN. Mustafa is a professor of English at Brooklyn College and holds a PhD from Columbia University. Mustafa, welcome to Africa Conversations. Well, thank you, Mikey. What an honor it is to be here. Yeah, it's, it's I, you know, I, I was really, really excited uh, to speak to you. Um, and I want to start where we typically start, which is a little uh, biographical note. Um, so you, you weren't born in the Arab world, nor were you born in America. Uh, most of your work focuses on Arab America and hyphenated things. Um, you were born in Europe, you moved to Canada, and then you eventually migrated to the U.S. Um, do you, when did you start becoming interested in sort of Arab-American politics and Arab-American, the Arab-American story? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think that uh, I've always been interested in sort of Arabness and Arab diaspora questions. So um, when I was an undergraduate in Canada, I was, um, you know, I began an Arab association at my university. And so I was really, we were really into Arab Canadian issues then. Um, and so I think I've always been interested in those questions. Um, uh, you know, and my parents uh, were both graduate students in Switzerland, and that's where they met. Um, my both of my parents are from Egypt. My father is from Alexandria. My mother from Cairo. Uh, so they didn't know each other in Egypt. They met in Switzerland when they were both graduate students, and uh, then they, you know, eventually we moved to Canada when I was very young. But so I, you know, being uh, my Arab identity, I think, has always been a big part of who I am. Uh, it's been a part of who my parents uh, have. Ra- my parents raised us with, I think, a strong Arab identity, and um, growing up in Canada. You know, being different, you want to know exactly where your differences lie and what's the meaning behind them. And so I think even from a very young age, I was already interested in a kind of questions around Arabness and Egyptianness and just otherness. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, um, so you studied, you studied English and literature. Uh, you did your PhD in English and literature uh, at Columbia. Um, and I was really curious to understand who you're, and the first book you, uh, you published as a co-editor is Folks on Saeed. Um, I presume that he was uh, a pretty profound influence on you, but I'm curious, who are some of the other influences? Um, who were you reading? Um, what did, sort of shaped your, um, your love of stories and your love, love of writing? 
Sure. I mean, I always was, uh, uh, loved my English classes when I was in high school, all the way through undergraduate years. Um, and, um, and I thought I was also really interested in the, the, in drawing and the plastic arts as well. Um, so when I went and I come from a family of scientists too, my, both of my siblings who are a little older than I am are, um, physicians. My, my parents both have PhDs in the sciences. So I'm kind of the odd man out. You're the, you're the failure. You're the, I, I am the failure in the family. <laughs> it's true. I was the last one to get a doctor added to my name. So it was, it took a long time. <laughs> and so, um, what happened then was um, I decided for undergraduate that I would first off um, start studying architecture. So in fact, I began my undergraduate career studying architecture. And then I just, you know, when I was in architecture school, I just wasn't feeling it. I wanted to engage with storytelling and with ideas more directly than through built form, I think. But we were really reading things around, um, questions around modernity and culture. And that's when I first started reading Edward Said seriously. Um, and so he was a huge influence on me just from the, you know, I had already been familiar with, with his work and familiar with him as a, as a spokesperson for the Palestinian cause uh, through high school. Um, but he was a huge influence. But then, you know, there are other sort of literary influences too. I mean, growing up in Canada, I was also really attracted to the work of Michael Andace, for example, um, especially some of the earlier work, you know, um, um, there's a trick with a knife I'm learning to do some of the poetry of uh, the collected works of Billy the Kid or um, In the Skin of a Lion, especially, which I thought was just a fantastic novel. Um, and also, these are novels about movement and migration at the same time, too. So those are issues that have always been really important for me. Um, probably, you know, unsurprisingly, have some kind of autobiographical element uh, to them. Uh, so I think I've always been, I've always felt in some ways that I'm somebody who's moving in my life from one place to another. And I think that that is a strength rather than as a, like, as a weakness. Yeah. Um, you know, I was telling you right before the call that I was sort of doing this deep dive into your, into your earlier work and your earlier articles. And I noted, and I was, I wanted to understand what you studied and versus what you're, what you're doing now. And, and I noticed there was a shift, right? So there's pre 9-11 work post 9-11 work. And it seems like the pre 9-11 work is all focused on the African-American uh, Muslim experience. And then all of your post 9-11 work is focused on the Arab American experience. Um, so can we zoom back about pre 9-11 and um, learn a little bit about what that work was and how it may be influencing the way you think about what you're writing about now and what you started writing about after 9-11? Absolutely. And so I'm so and am I right? Am I right? Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> no, you're 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 basically 100% right. I mean, you know, um, my dissertation was on it was called migrating Islam. And it was a kind of cultural studies dissertation that was look that was looking at how um, the, the cultural products of Muslims moving around the world. Um, and so, uh, you know, one chapter, for example, you can see right there, I published one chapter from the dissertation in 2000 called Shadows and Light, Colonial Modernity and the, and the, um, the Grand Mosquée of Paris. Uh, you know, so I was looking at the, that, I don't know if anybody's ever been to the Grand Mosquée, but it's in the Fifth Arrondissement, and it's like this really uh, interesting, has a really interesting uh, uh, history to it that's very much connected to uh, both uh, trying to sell 
the French imperial project and at the same time trying to use the mosque as a as a node of surveillance for this you know growing labor contingent that's coming from North Africa to France. But so I was lo looking at sort of the cultural products of Islam and migration and half of the dissertation was on African American Islam all the way from the days of slavery up until Malcolm X basically within the dissertation. And I was really interested in that material. Um, it was something that uh, uh, was is now more excavated than than it was at the time I was doing my dissertation. Um, and in fact, uh, it wasn't only me who was interested in it. Uh, Edward Said himself was also, as I was bringing this information to him, he was also really fascinated by it. Yeah. And um, he, at one point, he in fact he told me that he had just come back from Gaza at one point, and he, we stopped, he stopped me in the hallways when we were in Philosophy Hall at uh, Columbia, and you know. We said hello, past the the stairs, and then he turned around and he's like Mustafa, and so I turned around and he's like, I was talking about you in Gaza. You know, he always had this way of like, he was very grand in the, his pronouncements, so I, I felt very humbled by that. Um, please, please, can one of your next books be called Mustafa? I was talking about you in Gaza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> That's a great sure. book title. <laughs> And then, uh, and you're right, he would have said Mustafa because of course the, he, with the Shami uh, yeah. uh, inflection. Um, and then, um, um, you know, what happened was 9-11 uh, happened really. And before 9-11, immediately before 9-11, I was actually working on a research project that I never completed. And that was on Islam, uh, sort of the, the role that Islam plays within the New York state prison system. And so I was doing all of these visits to a lot of different institutions, talking to a lot of the people who are incarcerated there and like really, and you know, um, most of them are African-American, the vast majority of them are African-American and um, getting like really interesting sort of stories from them and, and just really understanding what their lives are like. And then not, it, within that period is when 9-11 happened. And I remember there was a time, it was just a few days after 9-11 had happened. And I was in, um, there's a medium security uh, uh, facility in Staten Island, it's called Arthur Kill. So I was in Arthur Kill and I was, uh, you know, I was talking to the inmates there and first I start off with a little lecture about African-American Islam and its history and that sort of thing. And then we would often open it up for Q and A. And then they all just sort of gathered around me and they were saying to me, they were like, what's it like out there? We hear it's really dangerous for the Muslims. And they were wishing me safety. And, and I was like, wow, this is like, my mind is sort of blown here because here I am in this you know, medium security facility and they're concerned about my safety out there. Um, and it was really uh, something profound about that moment. You know, that moment in 9-11 was, a, was a, uh, it was a shift in, in, in my perspective and a, a calling because I felt like there was this way in which not that many people, I think, knew the Arab American history, understood what was going on within the, the community at that moment, understood how to connect it with sort of larger of uh, uh, traditions and of American political repression and all of that sort of stuff. And so I think I felt that, you know, there was something that I, I was, uh, that needed to be said. And I think uh, if no nobody else was going to say it, then I needed to be the one to say it. Yeah, it's true. I was, we were speaking to Susan Abel Hawa um, mm -hmm. uh, on Tuesday, and I was reminiscing about the, the climate in America in, after 9-11 and comparing it to sort of the 
climate during in Trump's America, and and the flavor of anti-Arab sentiment yeah. is was different for sure. But the flavor in that, in two thousand one was so vitriolic, and it was not cool to be pro-Arab. <laughs> it just really wasn't. Um, and so it's it's it was like time travel to go back to that moment. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, before we get to Brooklyn um, about uh, storytelling. Um, I heard you. There's this quote that you said. You said telling a story is a very political act. You have to be uh, able to let go of who you are and um, and enter. Sorry, that's a typo. And enter into somebody else, um, breaking down identity politics and opening up the window of empathy. Um, that's paraphrasing you in a speech. Um, but essentially, I want to ask you about. And right after that comment, you say something about you wanted to use storytelling responsibly. Um, And you you, um, use, utilize storytelling in your books. You you focus on different stories of different people and you try to capture their stories. But how do you engage sort of responsibility or how do you think of responsibility when you think of storytelling? That's a really good and difficult question. <laughs> you know, I, I kind of hate the phrase storytelling because people throw it around so much. Yeah. And then I love that you said, I need, I need to be responsible. And I said, okay, amazing. What is responsibility in storytelling? <laughs> yeah, you know, because I think that um, storytelling is also theft a lot of the time, you know? Like you are using someone else's life to make a point that you want to make and so there's some element of stealing involved in that uh and so you have to be responsible with that i think and so you have to know how you are using somebody else's life with their consent in a sense you know and and or or if you don't have their explicit consent then at least you're on the same um notion of of uh the same plane of of politics and of of uh just the, of humanity you know the thing is is that all even the worst um moments in, in in world history are also motivated by storytelling right i mean when we have genocides that happen across the world those are also motivated by telling stories about another group of people yeah probably so, yeah, exactly. And so there's, it's still a story, you know, whether we, you know, at one point do we call a story propaganda, at what point do we not call it propaganda? And so I think understanding that storytelling is not just an inherently, um, inherently positive act, because we tend to think of it, I think, you know, ever since we're children, we're, we're, we're enamored with the idea of being told a story. But it's a really, it's a really um, live wire the idea of storytelling and so i think one has to be really careful with how you do it and understand also that once you set a story out into the world that it also has a life on its own at that point too and so you are absolutely in less control of storytelling than you think at the same time so there's just there's so many issues that actually are surround the question of narrative and telling stories that i think is uh that one has to think about if you really want to engage in it rather than just thinking that there's a kind of, you know, one-to-one correspondence of, Oh, well, here's a story. Let me just tell it. Like it doesn't actually, it's not actually that simple. It's so true. Cause like um, usually a, a, one of the biggest compliments you can get when you tell a story is that, Oh, wow. You really captured him or captured her. Um, 
but capturing somebody is like theft, right? Like yeah, you're, you're exactly. stealing them. You're stealing them. Um, so how did you how did you do it? Walk us through your approach. I mean, let's let's talk about let's talk about Brooklyn, and then we'll talk about your approach to storytelling a little bit. So you're based in Brooklyn. Your first book focuses on the Arab Americans of Brooklyn, for the sheer fact, out of convenience, but out of also the fact that there are a lot of Arabs in Brooklyn and many different types of Arabs in Brooklyn. So maybe talk a little bit about the different types of Arabs in Brooklyn and how you approach this first book for those of us who may not be as familiar with the book and with Brooklyn itself. Oh, sure, yeah. I mean, you know, um, in the year 2000, there was a census, the way that they do the US census every 10 years. And in the long form, they asked about Arab ethnicity, which they hadn't really asked in a very long time in the United States. And so, um, uh, so there was a kind of official number for Arabs in the United States. Uh, of course, the people who work in the Arab community organizations and even at the national level think that that number is way too low, but at least it's an official number. So we can operate with that number, knowing that there's probably um, degrees of impre imprecision within that number. But what we found in that number actually was that New York City had the largest number of Arabs in the country, not surprising because it's also the biggest city. And within New York City, Brooklyn had the largest number. And in fact, the number in Brooklyn slightly eked out even Dearborn, Michigan, which is kind of the unofficial capital of Arab America, right? And so that, it, there are a lot of Arabs in Brooklyn, but that, of course, what's different than in a place like Dearborn is that they're not, it, there's not a majority of Arabs. Not, there's not a plurality of Arabs. There's, Arabs are here with a lot of other people too. Yeah. So that makes, the, I think, the context of Brooklyn, one re, that's one way that the context of Brooklyn becomes super interesting. Um, and then also, um, um, the, you know, in, in, within New York City history, uh, uh, the Arab community within Brooklyn also has a long past. You know, what happened was the initial migration of people from the Arab world into uh, the United States often came through via New York City, and often they would go right to Manhattan in the beginning, and they would go to uh, the um, Lower West Side, actually very, very close to where the World Trade Center used to be. On Old Washington Street was known as Little Syria. Uh, and the community was based there for uh, for decades. And in fact, it was really at the time of the, um, the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel being built, sort of these big Robert Moses style projects, um, that the community was displaced. And from there, many of them went to Brooklyn. And they went uh, not only to Atlantic Avenue, which is what people often associate with the Arab community, but even from the beginning, they were already down in Bay Ridge, uh, um, uh, which is where the largest uh, center of the community currently is in Brooklyn as well. And so in, what that means is that there's a long history within Brooklyn too. So you have different waves of people who've come. You have them coming from Lebanon, from Syria, from Palestine. You have them also in Jordan, um, but also from Egypt. You know, a lot of Egyptians in Brooklyn, but just like there's a lot of Egyptians in Queens, New York now too. Yemenis. Uh, Yemeni, and then Yemenis, yes, of course. Downtown Brooklyn has a big Yemeni population still to this day. Uh, so, so, and and of course, throughout all the different waves, some of it was uh, in the early 20s, some of it is in post-65, some of it are refugee populations that are following different wars that have happened in the region. So, you know, I think the Arab American community is actually a very complex community that relates in a lot of ways to um, the complexities of U.S. domestic and foreign policies sort of combined, yeah. right? So you, you, you said a phrase, you said, um, I felt I was called to action and that something needed to be said. Um, and I guess I'll, I'll be the one to say it. Um, 
I'm curious what you learned because I feel like something also needed to be learned. Um, and so I'm curious what you learned through this project um, and be, because of the complexities of the community. Um, and how did you go about trying to capture these stories without stealing them and misrepresenting them and making them small? So one of the things that I did was, um, you know, sociologists will call it a, um, 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 a snowball sample. You know, so what I did is I, I started asking my friends when I had the idea that I wanted to write a book that was based on stories, I knew that I needed to get the right stories. And so I was following very closely what was happening just by also listening to all the different stories that were happening around me. But I also was asking um, people in various legal organizations or community-based organizations, or I went to a lot of the different um, mosques and uh, and asked vet people there too to you know if they know of people who want to tell me their story to let let me know kind of thing. But I I had a basic idea as to what I felt were some of the main issues that were happening at this time in the in the country uh, and even in the city. Right, there was a lot of um, you know the people were being rounded up and, and put in, into um, uh, in, in you know into jails uh, on bogus immigration charges or like you know uh, really really difficult immigration issues in the very beginning of the of the um, uh, right after two thousand and one right after right after nine eleven, or there was a lot of uh, employment discrimination that was going on and I was hearing a lot of anxieties around young young people trying to get jobs and that sort of thing and you know like I, I knew a bunch of the different issues there was a war in Iraq was was happening when I was writing this book too uh, um, it was like a big deal when I was writing this book and so. I wanted to understand what that meant from the from uh, an Arab American perspective and from an Iraqi Arab American perspective. And so there were certain things that I wanted to get represented, but I also just wanted to hear the kinds of stories that I thought people really wanted to, to tell. So it, it's a matter of sort of balancing, I think, both of those things, because you know that you want to be able to um, to understand the moment uh, analytically, but also you want to understand it sort of affectively and, and see how people are, are talking about that moment and, and enter into their worlds and how they talk about it. And so I think what I did was I also decided that I was going to write each chapter uh, with a, a kind of theme for each chapter or an issue that's there for each chapter. But I imploded in my in my head. What I was doing was I was taking a kind of typical feature article that happens in a magazine, which often begins with you know so and so went to the doctor and had you know terrible surgery, and, and it's going to be about you know how there's this bad surgery, and then the the bulk of the article will be about that issue, and then at the end you'll return back to the person and you find out something about how that person. It's a bit of a stereotype, but that's sort of how a lot of feature articles operate. Well, I wanted to do it in you know inverted so i was going to just tell the whole story you know, at the front and the center and then within that the the issue gets sort of like layered into the the person's story and i think that the people that i was talking to really you know if i can you know i believe that they really appreciated it that way too because it actually what was one of the things that was really heartwarming and and surprising to me unexpected was that they said that after they read their stories too, that they understood their stories in a different way because there was a kind of like, there was a kind of analytical element to it, but it was sort of buried within the life story. And I don't know if they had always thought about their stories within the same context that I was putting them in. So it was a partnership in that way. And I think yeah. that's the way that it wasn't outright theft. Right. Every story is theft, but it wasn't outright theft in that way. Yeah. I want to talk about the title. Um, the title, How Does It Feel to Be a Problem um, 
uh, being young and Arab, um, what is it exactly? I got it wrong. No, you got it right. Um, yeah, being young and Arab in America. Um, this is a, a shout out to W.E.B. Du Bois. And I heard you say that you chose the title before you wrote the book. Yeah. Um, and is that, did you regret it afterwards? Were you like, was I wrong? Was this <laughs> the wrong title? Or how do you feel about it afterwards? And why is it appropriate? Oh, I don't think I was wrong. I mean, uh, yeah. So how how did why does it um, did it did it become did it feel more appropriate over time? Did it feel less appropriate? Yeah, it's interesting uh, on one level too because what did happen was um, um, well, for one thing, um, uh, you know, when just before a book gets published, you get you get your copies right before it's even uh, is uh, made available, and so I had a dinner for uh, whoever could come who was who's featured in the book. And so we went to a local restaurant back when you can go to restaurants and I gave them all uh, copies of the book. And, you know, for, it was a long process. So they, you know, they finally had the book in their hands and it was so interesting because they saw the title and they're like, we should get t-shirts made, you know, am I your problem? Like they really embraced the title, you know? And, uh, and I thought that was really, uh, uh, Great. And then I would start lecturing around the, you know, around the country with the book. And in the beginning years, when I was lecturing around the country, people would come up to me afterwards and they'd say, I really like the book, but why this title? Because it seems like you're alienating your reader. Like, the people are, they're not problems. I'm like, well, no, you know, I don't, that's not why I was saying the title that way. Why? Well, the reason for the title in part, in large part, was it's a way of connecting to histories of racialization within this country. Uh, yeah. So um, that phrase is drawn explicitly from the Du Bois book, and, uh, and that phrase and the whole notion of Du Bois's career is one of like really getting into how to dismantle white supremacy within this country. You know, he actually has a really yeah. terrific essay, W. E. B. Du Bois does, called "The Souls of White Folk." You know, he has a book called "The Souls of Black Folk." which is, you know, with, where this uh, expression comes from, how does it feel to be a problem? But he has this other essay that's much less read called The Souls of White Folk, which is this really extraordinary dive into the damage that white supremacy has, has wrought to. Yeah, which is like know. the basis of James Baldwin's work basically after that. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let's talk a little bit about, the, there are gonna be questions in the chat, I'm sure about the, the first book. So I wanna talk about the pivot to, it's maybe not a pivot, but maybe an expansion or a reorientation to really think about um, this Muslim American life, which is a, a, a play on the NPR, um, yeah. This American Life um, show, um, which is also sort of codified 20th century, 21st century storytelling techniques. Um, and so you maintain this, uh, the approach, or the sort of commitment to storytelling as a, as a medium. Um, what was your approach here? Why did you decide to sort of shift here? What were you called to do in this case? Yeah, um, well, what I felt was going on in between the two books, I think the two books are, uh, I see them as com complementary to each other in, insofar as one is very narrative driven and, and the other one is more essayistic and essay driven. Yeah. Um, and so this Muslim American life is more essayistic and it's a little bit more uh, scholarly and a little more analytical on that level. Um, but, um, and then it also reflects a shift within American discourse, you know, because right after 9-11, people talked a lot about Arab and Muslim, as if that was one thing, Arab and Muslim, Arab and Muslim. Um, 
Uh, and then somewhere in like, uh, you know, I think it's probably around 2008, 2009, um, the discourse starts to shift and becomes more just about Muslim. Um, and a part of that, I think, is also with the election of Barack Obama, uh, because he's seen as a secret Muslim as well. That's part of the, uh, And it also it's a way of displacing anti-Black uh, racism against Obama onto something else and that sort of stuff. But, but the discourse has shifted. Uh, away from urban Muslim in the United States into more around Muslim issues. Um, and so- in particular, uh, in particular, as you mentioned, I've heard you say that, uh, which I didn't know, the majority of Arab Americans are Christians. That's right, yeah, by, by a large margin, in fact, still by a large margin, yeah. Um, and, and the ones who are here, uh, many of the Arab American Christians too, have been here for many, many generations. Uh, many of them have too. Yeah. So you may not even, you know, they may have intermarried with non-Arab uh, Americans and like, you know, they may not even register uh, within one's immediate, uh, you know, worlds as being Arab American. Uh, many of the Arab Muslim Americans are more recent arrivals as well. I mean, there are many recent Arab Christian arrivals too, I should say. Um, but nevertheless, uh, discursively, you know, Muslim became a new kind of like phenomenon within the United States of, of the dangerous terrorist type of immigrant. You know, if he had said, talked about Muslims within the United States before 9-11, then, you know, you would have thought about within the black freedom struggle. You would have thought about the Nation of Islam. You would have thought about Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali. But things change after 9-11 and especially a few years after 9-11 and becomes more around Muslim issues per se. Yeah. So, you know, that I think this other book also re reflects that shift on some level, too. I think also that, you know, the first book I see as being a product of the um, of the Bush administration, because it is really much around the sort of state repressive policies that the Bush administration ushered in after 9-11. And this book is, though it has a larger historical breadth, is kind of a Obama era-ish book, because it's also kind of scholarly and um, and looking at sort of like questions around race and, and ethnicity and, dis and through discursive lenses. And so, and yeah. cultural studies lenses. That makes a lot of sense to me. I didn't think about it in that way but that does make sense um i'm curious so as i said to you before the call we're in the fourth administration since 9-11 you know we're 20 years uh 20 years removed from 9-11 um and so what does um from your perspective I, I have two questions before we switch into the the chat um so this is uh, the, the penultimate one um the first is what are you working on now outside of your sort of your role as a public intellectual that is of the times right now. What do you sort of, what do you feel sort of called to write um, about right now? Well, the, what's it, I do have something that's in the hopper, but it's an article, uh, which is um, I'm writing a feature uh, profile of Tahani Abushi, who is running for the Manhattan DA's district attorney's office. Um, and looking at the questions around um, um, sort of the uh, what they call the progressive prosecutor movement in the United States, so that's the thing. Only thing that I'm, I'm working on. Um, I'm also doing a project. Uh, it's in its, you know, it's in still. I don't want to talk too much about it because it's still sort of nascent. But there's a lot of. Uh, I think that there's something about. Guantanamo Bay literature that needs to be then said. There's more and more work coming out of Guantanamo Bay, which is really interesting. 
And so I'm going to start doing a project that's going to look at that um, that moment in U.S. history and from a literary lens and see what what comes out of that. And uh, and I I still have another project that I'm um, uh, finishing up, uh, but it'll be a while. So also. Okay. Not talking too much about that yet, but I think that that other project will also reflect a little bit more from the the Trump administration because I I do see the books as sort of drawn about the different administrations, and so you know the first one being Bush, yeah. the second, yeah. So I have something that's that hopefully will come out at some point that has more of something to say with, with the Trump administration. Okay, um, I want to. The last question I wanted to ask you is about who are your comedic. Um, influences because your your work is profoundly funny you are you're a funny person um and your work is funny it doesn't shy away from it you use humor uh very classically um so is that a is that a something that you just can't avoid it's just part of your personality or are you deliberate about it and who are you referencing who did you grow up listening reading watching that may be influencing you I mean, I'm Canadian. <laughs> oh yeah, okay, so there you go. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I mean, all of Canada is just like, we're, we just try to, you know, it's really cold. How do you have to, you have to do something to survive. Sure. Right now, so. Yeah. yeah, it's true. But I mean, were there, uh, is it just like you grew up on Kids in the Hall and Martin Short and John Candy and you, you can't help it basically? Um, I hate to say it, but kind of, yeah, I think that's sort of true. <laughs> you know, also, we got a lot of the British uh, shows that we were really growing up to. So, you know, the we also watched Python, a lot of, yeah, Monty Python, Faulty Towers, all that stuff, and, you know. Yes, and of course, you can't forget my Egyptian background, too. So I think I, I uh, un unfortunately for the world, I have, you know, I come from the two people who just love to make jokes, which are Canadians and Egyptians. And, yeah. you know, so, yeah. All this research and I didn't even put that together. <laughs> okay, I want to switch to the quick Q&A and then we will open it up to the chat. Um, we have a couple questions so far. I'm sure there will be more. Um, what are you reading or watching right now? Sure, yeah. Um, I'm actually about halfway through um, guest, guest House for Young Widows by Azada Moavini, which is uh, you know, also a book that's somewhat similar in, in some ways to How Does It Feel, which is that it tells a bunch of individual stories, but in here it's about young women who've gone and joined ISIS, and it's uh, uh, and, and what their lives are like. And it's a very it's a very powerful, disturbing, and, and you know, but sensitive book too. So I like it. Um, I, I haven't finished it yet, but I think it's it's a uh, there's a lots of lot of good things to say about it. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. um, and next. Uh, who would you love to shadow for a day, past or present? Hmm. That's a good question. Uh, probably Che. Yeah. Interesting. Because then you also get to like roam around a lot and move around the world and understand the world in like a really interesting, you know, way. And like, Wait, did, you, did you say Che? Che, yeah, Che yeah. Yeah, 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 interesting. Yeah. So, at what at what point of his life did you would you want to shadow? Probably the earlier earlier Che, but I don't know. You know, later Che also went all over the. So I don't know. There's something about the sort of itinerant revolutionary that's fascinating to me. 
Yeah, sure. Great, great frequent flyer, Miles. <laughs> yeah. um, what do people most misunderstand about your work? I would imagine there's a lot. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that, um, you know, I actually think that even though my work is often based within kind of identity, different groups, you know, like identifiable groups, I just think that my work is actually mostly a work that's based on social justice. Like I, I wanna think that that's what the core of it is. Um, so I actually, and I bristle sometimes at the ways in which people think that I am a, a kind of identity politics person, because I think of myself more as a kind of like, you know, I'm just interested in issues of, of, of oppression and, and, and you know, undoing that oppression in whatever way is possible. And so I think, I think that that's probably the biggest misunderstanding that people have about my work. Yeah, I would imagine that there's a that it might be frustrating to see if people are using your work as um, a means to, uh, you know, em embolden identity politics and also sort of virtue signaling and um, a lot of the stuff that's uh, very, very destructive. Okay, sorry. Whose work do you admire or are inspired by? I'm sure there's a long list, but if you were to have uh, one or two. I mean, the obvious answer I think is Els, is Edward Said. I mean, he was the biggest influence I think on my on my intellectual trajectory. And in to my mind, the book that I've always admired. Uh, I mean, I admire my, you know all the work, but the book that I probably most admire has always been After the Last Sky, which is just this beautiful essay that's uh, with the photographs, and it's really also about like you know displacement and movement and non-movement and all of that sort of stuff and, uh, it's just be it's a beautiful book you know um other than that i mean you know Anne mcclintock who was also I, I studied with her at columbia as well and her work is just fascinating and, and really powerful and really really puts issues of um sort of global justice and um um uh, also, you know, movement here, her, her, a lot of her current work is very much on environmental justice. I find that to be really uh, an, a growing interest of mine at the same time. Um, Mahmoud Mamdani, uh, you know, I read his last, I was fortunate enough to read his last book just before it came out, um, which is, uh, I think, groundbreaking also. Uh, and, um, you know, it's just, it's it really is a way of trying to rethink um the history of colonialism through ethnic cleansing. Um, mm -hmm. And he uses the US's ethnic cleansing of its native populations as a, as a sort of foundational ways of thinking about colonialism, which I think is really instructive in a lot of ways. Um, you know, who else? I mean, also just, there's so many, uh, I've read uh, so many novels and novelists that I'm just loving. I mean, um, um, you know, um, um, Rawe Haj is a fantastic novelist, uh, yeah. and uh, uh, you know, admire everything that he does. Um, cool. so, you know, so I mean, yeah, I could go on and on and on. Yeah, great, perfect. Okay, let's open it up. So, Natalie, you have your first question. I'm asking you to unmute. Ah, uh, thank you, Mikey. Hi. Uh, 
Hi. So my question is kind of a a pedagogical one. I am also an English scholar. I'm an English PhD student, and I'm, you know, in the process of working on and hashing out my dissertation prospectus. But what I'm finding is that I'm very interdisciplinary, and it seems as if you are as well. So I'm wondering if you could speak to how you kind of remained rooted within the English discipline as you had kind of these uh, interdisciplinary and kind of intersectional interests? Yeah, wow, that's a really, really great question. And, you know, I'm going to say that one of the th- reasons, one of the ways in which I was able to do that was the fact that after I graduated from um, um, my PhD, I got a job at the City University of New York, which um, I think that had I gotten a job at what would be considered like an R1, like a research one level university, if I had gotten a job at say, you know, Princeton or something like that, I would have, I would have had to have stayed much more within the discipline and what the discipline asks for. But because there's certain kinds of um, liberties and freedoms, I think that not being at an R1 institution has afforded me. And I'm much happier, uh, you know, and I, I really do think that that's always been my my ethos is to be able to work within and write within different registers. Um, and yet at the same time, trying to keep the sort of rigor of scholarly, keep scholarly rigor alive. Um, so I think it's really, it's, uh, it's a really good question. Um, it depends also on who your uh, readers are at, at graduate school, because the readers that I had in graduate school, including Edward, were sympathetic to kind of cultural studies approaches. Um, and so that was also really important. Um, uh, but uh, yeah, I think that there's a way in which, um, you know, the discipline, academic disciplinarity can be, has a lot of value, but also can be kind of stultifying. And so if you're feeling that, that it's uh, not um, always working for you, then you know, maybe there are places that uh, demand more of it than others. And maybe should be, I was lucky that I was able to land in one that I think would allowed me the space to grow and to be the kind of writer that I wanted to be. I don't know if that's really a good enough answer to your question, but I hope that helps a little bit. That's great. Um, as I pull up Ziad's question that he asked me to read, um, Mustafa, do you believe, do you sort of think of yourself as a teacher first and foremost these days? I don't know. I think of myself always as a teacher, I, uh, especially when the semester's on, because <laughs> I'm like literally a teacher, uh, you know, two or three days a week. Um, and um, um, I mean, all of my work is, uh, you know, let me put it this way. I, I'm also really motivated by the sense of discovery. Um, so what I'm often looking for in my writing is to try to, like, I get really excited when I'm learning stuff. And so I find that a lot of academic writing, for example, comes from this position that's like, well, how come you didn't already know this? Like that's sort of the implicit uh, you know, tone of a lot of academic writing. Whereas my tone is always like, wow, this is really cool. Look at this, you know? Uh, and so I like that sense of discovery um, and I'm, I never want to get rid of that. And I hope that that sometimes translates into the, into the words themselves. But in, if, that was, if that means being a teacher because you're, you're getting excited about discovering something and wanting to share it with other people, then yes, absolutely. Then I consider myself a teacher first and foremost. But in fact, really what that means is that I'm actually a student always, and I will always be a student. 
Perfect. Um, okay, Jennifer, uh, you're up next. Hi, can you hear me? Yeah, I got you. Sorry. Great, no problem. Um, so yeah, with your in regards to your book, you mentioned uh, people were kind of confused about the title, like what does this mean, like a problem. And it, uh, I'm just curious if you find that many Arabs or Arab Americans are reluctant to connect to the history of racialization that you mentioned. Um, I'm just thinking kind of of things like census or things just like of model minority type of stuff and and things uh, maybe the Arab identity or Arab American identity often getting assimilated into whiteness or if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, it's interesting if I think about the, you know, I've been doing this long now, I guess, long enough that I can even chart certain changes in how audiences react to uh, the work, you know, because um, how does it feel hasn't changed as a book, except for there was a new afterward now. Um, but um, but the audience reactions, even from Arab Americans, has changed over the years. And so, like, in the very beginning years, in the first couple of years, I would say that often, like, when I would give talks, people often would come up to me afterwards and say, do you think it's really that bad? Like, do you think you're, is it, maybe you just found the, the, the worst sort of stories and like, I don't really know. And, but then after, you know, maybe three years or whatever, then I would mostly get, mostly people coming up to me saying, don't you think you're being kind of optimistic? Like things are a lot worse than what you're describing. There was a shift, there was this like massive shift. And that, that was mostly coming from young Arab Americans. And so I thought that was interesting. I think there was a way in which they were understanding that they were getting interpolated within US politics and maybe not necessarily understanding themselves racially in those terms, but understanding that they were now sort of negatively ascribed within American political discourse, right? Uh, so I've seen, I've definitely seen that happen over the years. You know, I think that people's uh, kind of awareness of of race and racism and racialization also has really sh has really shifted even in the last you know five or six years. I think that that's that's been a growth area uh, within American sort of consciousness and discourse, right? And then what also happened was that in all of the you know from 2008 is when um, uh, How Does It Feel was published in in paperback 2000 I mean in hardback in 2009 a paper, and then um, it it um, um, until about 2000, basically until 2015, I would have to spend, if I was giving a public lecture about the book, I would really have to spend the first half or third of that lecture proving that Islamophobia also was like a real issue in the United States and that people were harmed by it. And it wasn't just like some fake thing that the left and the Muslims had produced in order to like gain power and sympathy, which was the right wing talking point about Islamophobia. But then when the, um, when the rise of Donald Trump came, suddenly that, that discourse also shifted. And Americans, also the polling data bears this out, but I can speak from it from experience, that Americans then understood that Islamophobia was itself a really, um, um, uh, a real political problem within the country. And so that was also another interesting shift that I thought, uh, that I felt that I experienced myself while, while dealing with this issue. Great, great question. Um, Sada asked me to read her question for her. She said, I like the idea you mentioned on narrative, uh, on the narrative and discourse, which is something that could be seen as reproduced in the Arab world after 2011. This is my area of work. Could you draw on any parallels between the discourse post 9-11 and the domestic domestication of the same discourse in some Arab countries post 2011? So post 9-11 versus post 2011 in the Arab world. 
in terms of uh, uh, I, I'm, in terms of that's a big uh, like in terms of what yeah. exactly? Yeah. In terms of um, in terms of narrative and discourse. Narrative and discourse. Could you draw any parallels between the discourse post 9-11 in the U.S. and the domestica domestication of the same discourse in some Arab countries post 2011, mm -hmm. I guess, post Arab Spring? Uh-huh. Okay, like state narrative. State narrative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sure. I mean, like, if you think about the ways in which the state narrative of the U.S. became one of, you know, why do they hate us? That was the sort of dominant question and, like, and, and the notion that we're under attack and that we need, uh, uh, yeah, exactly, on terrorism especially. Okay, yeah, like, you know, absolutely. You know, terrorism became the defining um, um, organizing principle of the, of the entire massive apparatus of the federal, and not even just the federal, but even in many ways, the state and local governments in this country. You know, the FBI changed all of its uh, everything around uh, in order to prosecute terrorism. And even when oftentimes when there wasn't even any there, they would they would manufacture it so that they could prosecute it. Uh, that's, you know, there was a, just an article by Rosina Ali, who's a friend of mine in the New York Times magazine this past weekend, about one of the earlier cases that I use actually as the opening scenario for the book and how does it feel. So, yeah, the whole state became organized around the, the, this notion of fighting terrorism. I thought that this is something I deal with in this Muslim American life. And I think it's absolutely 100% the same as you see it happening in many parts of the Arab world right now, in the ways in which um, the, the discourse of we have to fight terrorism because that's the fundamental threat to our state. And that using that as a way of quashing all kinds of true movements and desires for liberty around uh, the region, um, there's absolutely a, a important parallels to be drawn. Cool. Great question, Zara. Annalise, you're up. Hello, Professor Bayoumi. Um, I noticed you had, or Mike had posted um, a graphic about uh, people who resembled Arab Americans or brown people and the, the, the where to put you know, yourself in the boxes that we have in the U.S. with the census. And I thought that was very interesting because I am in the uh, book group for the Marcos Review, and we read Leila Lalami's uh, Conditional Citizens. I'm sorry, I can't remember if it was S or yes, this. And she also brought that point up. I was just curious if you had read her book and what she thought specifically about, you know, about this and how, you know, how this, um, I, I don't know exactly what I'm trying to say, but just you know, the frustration, I guess, when you have to fill out bureaucratic information, you being, you know, someone who may identify as from, you know, coming from one of the places, just if you could remark on, you know, this idea of con conditional citizenship. Sure. Yeah, I haven't, I've read um, uh, other works from Leila's, but I haven't gotten around to reading that, that work yet. So I haven't read her analysis of this, but the, um, the graphic that's up on the screen right now is actually a graphic that was uh, associated with an article that I wrote for The Guardian, um, maybe, maybe two, either two or three years ago now, I can't remember. Um, and in fact, uh, yes, there we go. You can see it right now, uh, just over two years ago. Um, and it was, you know, I did a lot of research for that article. Thank you. This is the power of the internet here too. <laughs> um, one of the, you know, and 
the they, the Guardian was doing itself. They were running a series on um, on questions around uh, race, uh, and they asked me to write something for them on that. So I was like, I, so I pitched the idea to them to write about how you know uh, Arabs don't fit within any of these racial categories, and in particular, it became a you know as I was learning about how to fit how to how to write about this, I did a deep dive into all of the politics around here because there actually have been attempts to try to change the census over the years um, in ways that I think are really smart and have a lot more to offer than the way that the census is currently organized. Um, and one of the things that's really important to understand is that you have black Arabs, you have brown Arabs, and you have white Arabs. Like Arab is not a racial category, but then again, no category is really a racial category because race and ethnicity are themselves imbricated within each other. And so one of the reasons, one of the ways that they were thinking about um, integrating that question into the census was in fact collapsing a race, race question and the ethnicity question into one question. Because right now they, the first question is, are you Hispanic or non-Hispanic? And that's where the ethnicity comes in. And then, then they ask you the race questions, right? So they, what they said was, no, we're gonna get rid of all of that and we're gonna add new categories that are not only racial categories, but are also ethnic categories because it's so important to understand that even racism happens to people who are ethnically identified in this country too. Uh, and so they're just much more complicated than just being separated out in that way. So there was a proposal that would have also included a new box for the MENA category, Middle East, North Africa. I prefer SWANA, Southwest Asian, North Africa, but in it, nevertheless, so there was a new box for MENA and they were all set to actually include the MENA category in this new uh, way of thinking about how to tabulate race and ethnicity together in the country. And then under the Trump administration, it was, uh, it was uh, gotten rid of. Um, and so I think that was for me like a really, uh, uh, illuminating moment to understand not just my ways in which I do fit or don't fit, but also the ways in which um, we should think about Arabness also in really complicated ways too. We should think about Black Arabness as something not, and not just collapse everything into Arabness at the same time either. And so I think it's a lot, it's really complicated, but in a really good way, because I think it really makes us question and get into the ways in which um, difference operates. And because how difference operates is also how a lot of inequality in our society operates. So we can only get rid of that inequality when we understand the ways in which difference works. And so that, that, that was what led me to writing that piece. Oh, I want to have a whole other conversation about this point, in particular, um, that last sentence you said, but we don't have time. It's at the end of the hour. Um, I'm glad to see so many people here. I hope you enjoyed it. I just uh, pasted a link into the chat to give us feedback. If you'd like to connect with Mustafa, you can find him all over the internet. Um, and if you would like to support us, you can do so on our website. I'll put that uh, link in the chat as well. It keeps these events flowing and growing and uh, keeps them free and open to all with no membership card needed. Um, and we have a workshop this weekend. If you'd like to join, that's also free. Um, and then next week we have two events as well. So go to the website, check us out. And this, if anyone missed this talk that you want to send them to, this will be on the podcast next week. Thank you, everybody. And special thanks to Mustafa. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Mikey. This, this is great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. We have new episodes coming every single week. 
Make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. You can find us at afikra.com for information about all upcoming events. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. See you next time and stay curious.